this is like an office, and I'm north of Los Angeles. This is an out-of-town house that before quarantine I'd had for over a quarter century, but I'd never been more than a week at a time. And now I've been living here for over a year, along with my wife and child, and we've decided to make this our primary home. What you're seeing is kind of a weird... It's a very eccentric place that I, I put together over many years. How does one acquire these terracotta soldiers behind you? Uh, in this particular case, you just happen to be on a set of a movie called Rush Hour 2. And um, there was about 30 of them lined up in a fictitious casino in China. And I'm like, oh my God, these are so cool. I mean, they're carved out of like concrete. They're heavy. And the director heard me say that. And about three months later, a truck pulls up <laughs> and he goes, where do you want these? They're way a ton. So that's just one of the uh, many perks, I assume, of being in the film business. I would say that's a perk, but not one of many. This director, uh, whose name is Brett Ratner, he's just that kind of guy. You know, he's like, I didn't even like beg. You know, usually I'm begging for, for anything. And like, oh, please, can I just have like a keepsake from, you know, my animated films and whatnot. And here he just like overheard me talking and just did it on his own. They've been here ever since. So you relocated outside of the city. Was it time to get out? Was it COVID? Oh, yeah, it was totally COVID. No, I mean, you know, come March, it's like, well, everything's shutting down. Let's go up north uh, because at least, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice place to be. I'm lucky to have this place. But more to the point is we were afraid in Los Angeles that I said, you know, what if it gets like New York where, you know, you can't get into emergency rooms? That was really the, the big motivating factor was just fear of uh, being in a big city, an urban center in a pandemic. And of course, L.A. never did get that bad. But that thing that happened in New York was really fucking scary. You know, the idea of getting very ill and not being able to get into an emergency room is a scary thought. And I'd never known that in my lifetime. I mean, certainly it's some something many people throughout the world, you know, in other countries have know that, yeah, this is part of our lives. But in, you know, in America, it's not part of our lives, you know, not having access to an emergency room. Yeah, I'm actually in Queens. So I was here really yeah. in the kind of epicenter of the world for that. It was yeah. very scary. And, you know, most of my, or at least half my friends live in New York. So I feel like I was like right there with that and feeling it very much. So it, it really stuck with me, you know, as it started getting bad in LA, it was kind of like, all right, I think it's time to go North. And, uh, and after about three months here, it was kind of like, why are we living in LA? <laughs> You're out of the city permanently? Well, I mean, I'm going to keep a residence in the city, but we sold our house, yeah, about uh, four months ago. What was keeping you there? Work, essentially. Uh, well, no, I mean, that's not completely true. I mean, my life was there. My, my relatives, my family, and I have a son that goes to school. So, you know, there were many things. And then at the end of quarantine, we realized, okay, we're going to have to have a location because eventually school will start up again. And we bought a, a, a house, finally, another house, a smaller place. And, uh, you know, we'll keep it at least have it for a few years until my son finishes high school and figures out what he's going to do. But the difference is, is that now that's L.A. is my secondary home. Is location important for what you do? Yes and no. 
for what I did like on big mess. No. I mean, I was, I did the entire album, all the recording, personal recording up till, you know, obviously I had to come back to get real drums and instruments on, but all the songwriting and all of my keeper vocals and guitar playing was all done in a little writing room here. It's like as unfancy as you could ever have is just like not a studio in any way, shape or form. I had a computer and in that computer I, I could write orchestrally. So, you know, I could work, if I'm working on a film, I can come up here and still keep working on a cue, but I have a beautiful collection in, in LA at my studio of guitars, acoustic guitars and electric guitars and a lot of outboard gear. And up here I had one guitar, <laughs> one handheld microphone, and no working pair of headphones because they didn't work. And I realized once I started in that it was fine. I didn't, that's all I needed. And in fact, I learned that I like doing vocals without headphones even more. And I kept doing it that way. Even after I fixed, I fixed my headphones eventually, but um, I stayed off headphone on handheld mic still. Ultimately, do you think that constraints like that were uh, a positive when it comes to making music? I don't know. It's hard to say in hindsight, it wouldn't have happened were it not for. So there's kind of no way for me to put it into balance out would it have been a different album had quarantine not happened because it wouldn't have happened. But I did learn that I personally can make do with a lot less. And I talked with a lot of other people this last year who kind of similarly made lifestyle choices that they're not completely giving up. So I, I understand, you know, a lot of people, and especially if you had small kids, you know, how incredibly different difficult quarantine was. And it, and it was for me in the sense I feel cut off from my family. You know, I, I have like a very tight, big kind of close knit family and close friends. And, you know, we get together every week for years, like and uh, I really missed that. But on the other hand, um, I got into a rhythm that I hadn't done in a number of years. And that, I realized, boy, that's something to be said for that. You know, I, I got real healthy. You know, I spent more time just exercising. And, you know, it was like more personal time. And I think that's the common link I have with a lot of people right now. That, you know, I know that there's a lot of people who can't wait to get back to the office. And, but there's a lot of people who are also, you know, part of working at home, I really like. And uh, they want to try to keep that going. And now there's a little bit of a tussle I keep reading about between uh, a lot of companies going, no, no, everybody's got to come back. But a lot of people are going, um, how about half and half? Uh, maybe not so much. And so... I, I know that I'm feeling something that isn't uncommon, that it was horrible what we all went through. And it was like the worst year ever. And yet out of this kind of forced isolation, some of us came out with some positive elements that we simply wouldn't have encountered otherwise. And I would fall into that category. And I certainly know for the future, should I ever decide to record again, that give me one mic, my a computer, to record into and uh, an electric guitar and I'm absolutely fine. One of the conversations that I've had with a number of people on the show that I don't think gets talked about very much is almost a sense of guilt at having 
not enjoyed, but at least been productive. Yeah, maybe gotten better during the quarantine. <laughs> oh my God, I've been hearing the same thing every day. It's like I feel guilty because I actually thrived creatively in this time of misery and hardship. And you do, you feel guilty. I, I feel guilty. And it's like, I don't like to think it's not guilty in the sense that the quarantine was part of the depression and anger. It amplified everything I was already feeling, you know, 2020, I was so frustrated and angry anyhow. And then the quarantine exacerbated all that, you know, and and you got to understand that I purposely, and this is so ironic, but it's classic me. I took no film work in 2020 for the first time in 35 years. No film work at all because I had concerts booked the whole year and I decided to give that year to concerts. I had uh, two world premieres for classical uh, compositions I was doing. I had uh, Coachella and from Coachella, we were talking about doing some further concerts out of that. I had uh, Nightmare Before Christmas shows booked in different cities and countries. I had Elfman Burton, which is this, I've been doing this for eight years now, this uh, show, uh, live orchestra to Tim Burton films. And um, I had that stuff booked all over the place. And it all, of course, imploded. So of course, the year that I give completely over to concerts is the year that it all implodes. So when I got up here and started quarantine, I was taking the angst and anxiety I was already feeling just living in America in a in a George Orwellian world that seemed close to impossible and was having the first conversations with my wife ever about what other countries we might have to live in. Um, and then you add quarantine to that. It's like, oh my God, it was like a pressure cooker for me. And after like a month of total mind fog depression, I started writing. And once I started writing, it was like a Pandora's box. So between April and July, it was just like, I can now, I can't stop it. And I had to arbitrarily set a deadline in August to finish up because I I told my manager, I said, I set out to write four to six songs. I have 18 and I won't stop (laughs) because I'll just keep trying to get it right. Do another one, do another one, do another one. Did you stop when the 18, when you hit 18 or is there still a part of you that is kind of still in that song cycle? No, no, no. I, I, I set an end because I have to, you know, I'm not used to working without deadlines for the last 35 plus years. I've done nothing off of a deadline and uh, whether it be classical or film, they, they all have deadlines. And so, you know, this Pandora's box, once it was opened, I said, you know, I I just won't close it. But also I had other commissions and things I was supposed to work on that were getting pushed back. You know, in April, when I started Big Mess, I was trying to write, uh, you know, a piece for that was going to premiere in August at the proms in London, finishing it up for the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. There was that point in April, I'm sure you remember, where everybody knew there was going to be nothing. Now... There's technically, they hadn't canceled yet. They're still open, but there was that feeling of it's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. It's going to be all a fucking wash. That took the wind out of my sails. And that's where I switched gears. And because I'd been rehearsing for Coachella, I had this sound in my head. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had one song, uh, which became Sorry. 
and it was originally written as a concept instrumental piece. There was no lead vocal. There was just, uh, um, it was written for orchestra, rock band, and nine uh, to 12 female singers. I still, that piece was going to premiere at Coachella. And I think when I went into quarantine, rather than going a synth- synthesizer direction, which I could have done, I still had the feel of the guitar in my fingers. And I also realized that when you're really angry, you know, rock band is a good way to express it. So I'm glad I took that direction with it. So I just set off knowing, I know this is going to be not synthetic driven. It's going to be rock band driven, guitar driven and orchestra because I've got this thing in my head. And um, that's all I knew. The concept of deadlines, I think, plays into that earlier question again of constraints from the standpoint of, you know, obviously you're a creative person and you've been doing this for a really long time, but there can be a tyranny of choice when it comes to sitting down and, and writing something. Well, but that's, that's essential in a way. I, I would still be working on Pee Wee's Big Adventure had there not been a deadline trying to get it right. Cause I never feel like I'm finished. I never feel like I've gotten it. It's done. It's like a, it's as good as it can be. You know, that's just not how I'm wired. I'm wired to think, all right, it's okay, but I could still do better. I could still do better. And so um, I depend on deadlines to like, all right, you know what? It's fine. It, it, this is as good as I can do within the constraints of the time that I'm working there's the constraint of the of the timeline, but there's also like for example, the fact that this was primarily written on guitar. The guitar is really the one instrument that you have in front of you profoundly shapes the work that you're creating. Yeah, yeah, definitely it took me in that direction, you know, and I had my synthesizers at my disposal um to work with and fortunately, you know, it's you have pretty decent artificial bass and drums even though I knew all those would get replaced. But it was good enough to like create a vibe for the piece. And in fact, uh, sometime in the next month, uh, I'll probably release all my demos on my website just for nerd, nerdy people <laughs> who want to like kind of like get in there and see, oh, how, what was the origin of this stuff? And even if it's only for like 12 really curious nerds, it's like, that's the kind of person I am. So I figured somebody would get a kick out of it somewhere. You alluded to earlier some depression around and I think to a certain extent obviously anybody with any kind of empathy was experiencing some kind of depression over the past year certainly and probably the past four or so years for for a lot of us yeah how literal do you mean depression in this context I mean were you really dealing with something dark and and personal well yeah I mean you know talking about moving your entire existence away from the only place you've ever lived and known your whole life is heavy on top of like the depression of like what a pandemic causes and all the misery in the world and um, the terrible things I was getting from my friends in New York. You know, that was so scary because I have so many friends in New York and what New York went through at the beginning of the pandemic was really terrifying stuff. So, you know, add that to four years of this Orwellian Trumpism where two plus two is always going to equal five. It's never going to equal four. You know, it's like, this is what George Orwell talked. I felt like 2020 was like a sequel to 1984. Um, You know, this is just not something I could ever imagine happening in my lifetime. 
It's like the country going that crazy over a demagogue, over like a, a populist kind of madman. I just couldn't believe it. You know, I, I was just really in a state of disbelief. When you reach a point where any a person, your leader can say anything they want and it's taken for granted that it's true, regardless of where it comes from, if there's any facts behind it, if there's any reality behind it, it doesn't matter. And I'm going, my God, is this America or is this North Korea or is this Russia or where is this? It's like, this just isn't how we're wired to be following a single populist leader, everything they say without skepticism. You know, we're supposed to be like a skeptical people. We're supposed to question everything. And it's supposed to be idea-based, not person-based. And so for years, you know, I've been a very liberal person. I grew up liberal, but I've had great arguments with conservative friends and 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 read conservative uh, op-eds in the paper. Uh, you know, I've read George Will for years. And even though I totally disagree with most of what he says, what he says is really smart and it's really well thought out. And there's a serious argument there and it makes me consider his point of view. It's rooted in reality to a certain extent. It's rooted in reality. And there's enough, like I was, you know, read him today in the Washington Post and it was challenging my thoughts about the subject that he was talking about because that's what democracy is supposed to be about. You get another point of view debated intelligently and it makes you question, all right, let me analyze my own thoughts about this and that maybe I readjust my thinking a little bit. You know, maybe I don't go completely over and say, I, I buy this. But on the other hand, there's enough, enough intelligence in it that it makes, it causes an adjustment in my thinking. And that's the healthy part of a democratic society. You've got two sides that are actively engaged, seriously committed to debating ideas. And I just so believe in that, you know, the beauty of that, that you've got your point of view. I've got my point, my point of view, but if we, if we're respecting each other, we can have a great talk about it. And maybe at the end of the talk, we'll have each nudged each other 10 or 15% towards the other one's point of view, or maybe more, you know, that that's beautiful. Not this, you know, this was like watching a mob. And um, I've always been terrified of mobs, uh, mob mentality, mob think. And I remember once being in England and I was lost. I was trying to find a tube station. I was in the middle of nowhere. And I hear this chanting in the distance and I realized, oh, I was not far from a soccer stadium and it had just gotten out. And I hid off in a corner and I watched a couple thousand people walk by me chanting. And even though I knew, absolutely knew that they had nothing to do with me. And if they saw me standing there, they'd probably just wave. I, you know, I wasn't part of what they were chanting. The idea of a mob chanting and marching along the streets made me want to get the fuck out. And it just takes me back to fear of fear of mobs, fear of Gestapo, fear of, you know, um, Chinese uh, Maoist youths uh, marching to the university to like take out the professors, you know, in anti-intellectual, the idea of anti-idea, anti-science, anti-reality, anti-everything. It's all about the leader. It's what Mao said that mattered. It didn't, nothing else mattered. And um, I find 
this is America. This isn't America. I don't, I don't understand it. You know, I just, I don't understand the lack of questioning. You know, it's like when I, I, I was a big believer in Obama, but I questioned everything he said and did. And a lot of the press I read, you know, even liberal press was really critical of a lot of things he did. And that's the way it should be. You know, it's like, yeah, he, he's my leader of choice, but I'm not going to buy everything he says, point blank. There's no fucking way. That's not how we're supposed to be wired. We don't buy into our fucking leaders, no matter who they are, because a certain part of everybody who becomes a leader of a country is full of shit, no matter what side they're on. So once you lose that bullshitometer and you start just believing like a religious cult, it's like deeply unsettling. So I was deeply disturbed. And it, and it goes way beyond conservative liberal because I had this argument with a guy on Instagram who was like really chastising me for like, you know, you fucking entertainers should just stay out of politics. I used to be your biggest fan. Now I'm not. And I wrote him back and I said, this isn't conservative versus liberal. I said, I will engage anytime with anybody on any of these ideas. This is something, this is about our democracy. And I see it disappearing. I see us going towards what a Putin-style democracy, which is a democracy where everything's prearranged. Your parliament, your justice system, everything is already working towards you. You can, you're in. You're not getting out. You're not giving it up and you don't need to. That, that's what I see. So it was a year like I'd never experienced. And I, I, I was around for the 60s. So I was around for what it was like towards the end of the Vietnam era when the country was absolutely split into two groups. And I could tell you that that was nothing like it is now because that was over an idea rather than a god or a demigod. I think often the idea of music as personal therapy or catharsis can be kind of overstated in a lot of cases, but it sounds like that was very much the case for you. Oh my God. Yeah. When I opened my mouth and started singing, uh, which started with sorry and then went from there, I just realized I was filled with so much venom that I had to get this stuff out. It sounds like you almost surprised yourself. Oh, I, I was shocked. I was really shocked, you know, and, uh, you know, even knowing that, as I started writing, there were two writers living in my head that were competing. And one of them was heavy as all fuck. <laughs> and the other one is the opposite, you know, is sarcastic and ridiculous and absurd. And they each want their time. But even in that context, um, you know, the frustration and the anger was there. I heard you in an interview uh, discussing going back to some of the Oingo Boingo stuff in the context of performing it at Coachella, and then obviously Insects made it onto this record. You know, you alluded to the fact that, you know, a lot of, in a certain sense, a lot of that work already was fairly dystopian. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, you know, even in the 80s, I was like obsessed with the possibility of this kind of fascistic dystopian possibility always looming out there. And, you know, I just expressed it very sarcastically, but looking for material that I could update and uh, that had something kind of uh, socio-political in it was not hard. I, I was listening. I said, oh, there's that and that and that. Now, the funny thing is that Insects, which wasn't at all political, even that became a political song, you know, and that's the reason I kept it on the album is like uh, reviving it for Coachella. At the end of writing everything, I said, you know what? 
I really like what Insect became. I like the vibe of it and the feel. And uh, I decided I'll pull that onto the big mess and make that my one nod to the past. But that was just like the arrangement that kind of fell together that I did for Coachella stuck with me. And I said, this that was just so much fun putting that together. And I liked just the vocal and what it was. And so I, I, that was, I figured that the one uh, nod to Oingo Boingo. I speak to a lot of people who are in bands and who have been in bands for decades. And when you play a song for decades, your relationship to it changes and perhaps your own interpretation of the your original intent and, and the subject matter also tends to evolve over the years. And obviously a song like that or any of the Oingo Boingo catalog, for the most part, you have a lot of distance from in that you're not in a band in that way. You're not going out and performing it every night. No, I mean, I haven't performed a thought about any of those songs since 1995. I mean, literally, when I stopped in 1995, it's the last time I listened to any. I never listened to earlier work. I'm the same with film scores. The minute I record it and that soundtrack album's released, I never listen to it again. It's like gone forever. And so it wasn't until Coachella that I started even listening and it was kind of fun and weird because I hadn't remembered even half the songs. <laughs> it was kind of an interesting experience because it's like, that's a lot of years to go back and revisit. So you're absolutely right when you say bands, you know, like songs kind of change in meaning over time. But I didn't have that much time with a lot of these songs for them to change meanings. I was more just revisiting after like, 30 to 40 years. You didn't have time with them to change meetings to, to sort of evolve with them in real time, but perhaps because there was such a large gap of not engaging with them all, that that's even more of an opportunity to have a radically different interpretation of the work. When, when you went back specifically for Coachella and revisited some of this stuff, was there anything that really surprised you that really jumped out at you about that earlier work that perhaps you didn't expect? Well, yeah, I mean, I was surprised that like the songs like Nothing to Fear and Just Another Day and Insanity, these songs, I was like, all of these songs like make just as much sense today. <laughs> they make actually more sense today than they did originally. You know, all I have to do is like change like four words of things that I was afraid of in the 80s as opposed to things that I'm afraid of now, but it's the same intent and the same concern. So uh, I didn't have to like dig far to find the source of, of that. And then it was fun also listening to some of the weird sarcasm. It, it made me understand a little bit about the difference of how I wrote then and how I was writing now, because most of what I wrote in Onga Boinga was written third person. I would take a character and write from the standpoint of that character because I remember even back in those days, earlier on, people would ask me and since then, they said, aren't you ashamed writing about a song like I Love Little Girls? And I would say, and I still say, I say, no, not at all. The character who's singing I Love Little Girls, he's Jeffrey Epstein before I knew who Jeffrey Epstein was. He was a reprehensible character. That's who he always was back then, too. And I said, when I wrote Capitalism and I'm lamp blasting middle class socialist brats, I was a middle class socialist brat. I'm talking about myself, but from the viewpoint of a character from the other side. So that's kind of how I approached everything. On Big Mess, I did that on Love in the Time of COVID, where I wrote from the perspective of a horny 20-year-old living by himself, going crazy, climbing the walls. Obviously, that's not me. But most of the rest of this stuff really was me. And I just found myself not going to third person as much. I was writing much more from my own 
inner whatever. And I realized in hindsight that writing third person is also self-protective. In many ways, this is your most personal record. Was there, is there any point where you felt like maybe it was a little too personal that yeah. you're known for being a kind of secretive person or, you know, at, at least, you know, you're not, you're not in the public eye in the way a lot of people of your stature are. Well, I wasn't until I, I suddenly joined Instagram and now, you know, people are writing me all about my, my chickens. Now you're fighting with people about politics. Yeah. For better, for worse Let's say until two years ago, you're right. For the previous 35 years. Absolutely. Yes. As I was finishing a lot of the material, there was three or four songs I was considering not putting out. Even when I wrote the song True, I thought, I don't know if I want to release this. When I wrote In Time and even uh, there's like half a dozen that I thought, I don't know if I want to put this out. I feel like it's like revealing more of myself than I feel normally comfortable with. We Belong, Dance with the Lemurs, all of these songs. You've named like virtually every song on the record, but True was the first one that jumped out at you. What What is it about that one specifically? It was just darker than I had imagined I would do. It was just like, I, I just don't know how comfortable I am putting this out there. And then it was when I was really done and listening and playing music for other people, I decided, you know, fuck it. You know, what, what do I care at this point in my life? You know what I mean? Just put it out there. Dark is a funny word because... Again, a lot of the Oingo Boingo stuff was dark, you know, sarcastic, but dark. It's sarcastically dark. That's There's a difference between macabre and dark. Now, in the Oingo Boingo days, dark was fun dark, you know, more like grand guignol or macabre kind of sense of crazy fun dark. You know, it's all about Halloween dark, you know, is different than talking about your own death and the regrets of your life. It is a whole different animal. What happened a few years ago that made you want to get on Instagram? You know, it was when I did my had my violin concerto, and I realized for the first time in many, many years, it's like, how do I get the word out there that I've got this piece of music? Because for so many years, I've been a film composer. And as a film composer, I felt no need to ever amplify my work because it's all tied to a film. And people either do or don't know that a film came out. The film is a score and they either did or didn't like the score. I don't need to like push myself beyond that or create awareness beyond that. And suddenly with this concerto, it's like, oh my God, I, I really want to let people know that I have this and I have to force myself to connect because I vowed I would never go on social media. You know, back in the early days of the internet, I would do some engagement with fans in the email and uh, just, you know, the original way when it all started. And I had this unpleasant time. I was, I forget which album I was on, where I started getting some really nasty shit back from fans. And they were like turning on me in a really negative way because they didn't like the new stuff I was working on. And their attitude was like, we made you and now you're ignoring us. And how dare you? And... I would start getting caught up in, you know, my always my sense is to debate. So somebody throws something at me. I want to debate it. And I was going up and back and up and back. And I realized this is like taking all my energy. And it's not getting anywhere because there are certain kind of arguments that you just can't argue. You know, my right to go in different directions, to experiment, to, you know, to try to feel like I'm an artist, not beholden to any particular thing that I must do. I felt like that goes without saying, but there are a lot of people out there that didn't agree with me, but I couldn't keep defending myself in that way. 
And I just decided I would go under. And I'm a pretty private person anyhow. So for 35 years, I happily stayed off of all, you know, public forums. And then it was that piece that brought me out. And then, of course, you know, I had two more pieces after that. And then, of course, the big mess is happening. And it's like, okay, it's time. But I've actually been enjoying the engagement this time. You know, even though I mentioned like this guy wrote me this email and I got into a big kind of debate with him, most of it um, has been more constructive and positive. And I, I found that even a lot of my old fans are really kind of respecting my desire to do something different now and do what I'm doing. And, and I'm, I'm actually getting a lot of uh, appreciation. And so my experience so far right now uh, with social media has been quite a bit different than it was the first time around. And it's been actually encouraging, which is kind of nice. And uh, and I've actually been enjoying the interplay and doing silly videos of me and my dummy buddy and uh, and my time with the chicken coop. And, you know, uh, there's definitely always going to be a theatrical side of myself because I come from theater that loves absurdity. And so it's given me a kind of a vehicle again to be absurd. I've been enjoying that. How is your relationship to fans and fan feedback evolved over the years. I mean, obviously you're somebody who has gone your own way and has been willing to make pretty radical changes to not just the music you make, but the kind of the, in some ways, the mediums that you, you work in. Is there just sort of an understanding that a, a, a certain group is going to follow you wherever you go and whatever you do? No, I, I don't ever assume that. Everything I do, I assume that I'm a pessimist, the eternal pessimist. So I assume that anything I do that's new and different, that everybody who's ever enjoyed what I did will hate me and that I'll just have to start from scratch. So I've, I expect always uh, denial and resistance. So when I don't get that, I'm actually always pleasantly surprised. And certainly, I, certainly that's been the case so far this year. I know that in the process of releasing The Big Mess that for you during COVID, you were kind of forming pods with some of these labels and 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 really sort of sitting down with them and, and playing the music for executives. What was that experience like for you to sit down with an executive and play something so deeply personal and basically be able to look at somebody's face as they react in real time to this very strange record? Yeah, it was very interesting and cool and really a first time because every album I did in Oingo Boingo a deal was made. We'd go to a new label. We'd record an album. We'd play it when we were done. But at that point, people are listening to an album that's already finished. You know, of course, they're saying, oh, yeah, we love it. That's that. They may not love it. And, you know, the album might be hist history within 30 days. But regardless, you know, that's the experience. And this time was completely different. I was out there selling myself for the first time since I was trying to sell my first four-song EP back in 1978 or nine, whatever it was. And uh, when the K-Rock DJ Jed the Fish picked it up, you know, it's like, I feel like I'm back in that same place again. And I was digging it. So I was getting, because of who I am, I was getting a lot of record companies going, oh, we'd love to hear what Danny Elfman's up to. And my manager would warn them, says, you know, it's not Oingo Boingo. Oh yeah, yeah, we know that. We know that. It's not pop music we know that oh yeah we it. we know it we know it and still they'd sit there and of course the process of creating a playback was rough because we're in covid so they'll pick two 
representatives from the company. Everybody quarantines for two weeks. We all get our tests, wait 48 hours, get our results. And then four of us would meet at my studio, me, my manager, and two from the record company and sit 10 feet apart. And I'd play my demos. The experience was really cool because I'd always start with Sorry, which was the first song I did for Big Mess. And I felt was the center of it in a weird way. I think I really wanted to start there because it's like, if this one throws you, then you're just going to stay thrown. You know, like, don't try to ease into it. Don't try to like, you know, there was a way of like, well, why don't you start with some of the more recognizable things, start with something more punky or faster or something that they'll understand. I go, no, this is how I want to do it. And it kind of became a little bit of performance art for me because I was watching some really horrified faces. And weirdly, I was kind of perversely enjoying it. So it's going, I'm getting this reaction and I'm enjoying the reaction, which is kind of horror. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, then I'd continue from there and I'd play like maybe seven or eight more songs and they'd, they'd go, oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. But I could feel that. Ah, let me out of here. Really, until I sat down with Andy from Anti Records and I played Sorry and I'm watching him. And it finishes and he turns around and he starts clapping. And then he wants to talk about the song for 10 minutes before even going on to the next song. Break it down to deconstruct it. He was so interested in it and what it was and where it was coming from and how unexpected it was for him. And it was kind of right then and there. And it went uphill from there as I played like another half dozen songs. It was like, all right, I, I know this is where I'm meant to be. And then his partner, Brett, from Epitaph, because, you know, they're kind of sister labels. I, I did a second presentation and it went just as well with Brett, you know, and so, and it's been a great experience because I'm used to having a much more distant relationship with my record labels. And with uh, Andy and Brett, I really feel like I was uh, in partnership. Um, in fact, we got to the point where with the mixes, every mix, because Brett has really good ears, you know, he's an engineer. And so we, technically we'd just be like breaking it down, talking. No, let's, let's, let's get the, yeah, let's work on the drum sound. Da, 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 da. And, and uh, he was really almost like a producing partner on the record with me. And I've never had that before. So as soon as I finished a mix, I was like texting it to Brett. Wait, as soon as I get home, he put on his uh had his earbuds or listen in his car, wait till he got home, call me and we'd break it down, talk about it, make notes. And so it was very different kind of thing. Was it a similar impulse that led you to open the album with Sorry? Yeah, I felt like that's the first thing that got it all started. And that was like the first kind of explosion of frustrated, angry energy. And I felt like that's how I should lead it off. So there never was a question that that would lead it off because in the same way that I wanted to just get right out of the gate with, I don't know what the fuck this is and you listening to it probably won't know what the fuck this is. So it's like, enjoy it, I hope, but if not, I get it. And then there's 17 more songs behind it if you feel like, you know, experimenting a little bit. 